A few minutes ago, um, I was taking the dogs out for a little walk and I mean, you just never know what's going to activate feeling, what's going to activate heart. And I looked over and um, all the tomato plants were like super heavy with tomatoes <laughs> growing uh, and a lot of red dots, a lot of red tomatoes. And I just had this overwhelming feeling of love about tomatoes. <laughs> and in a few, you know, I don't know what it's about. Um, it's about so many things. Just the fact that we can grow food, that the food, that the plants can offer us food. What a miracle. <laughs> and, um, I, I think it made me feel for <laughs> my childlike enthusiasm in bringing home way too many starters. <laughs> and then all the effort that um, Julia and Kiku and others made to plant all these plants, find space for them. And then it also brought me in a moment to um, my grandmother and her, and her use of all these tomatoes to make gravy at the end of the season and then it brought me to italy and it just brought up brought up brought up right all these conditions that get activated with me looking over at that tomato plant and then things i don't even understand and after sitting for a couple of days and <clears throat> contemplating Shin and seeing uh, my struggle with it, like that activity um, created the conditions for that grace. So I wasn't just looking at the tomato like it was just an object. It was a being that was intimately connected to me. So, um, after Kosin finished his talk yesterday, beautiful talk, and spoke about the Buddha's um, path and shin, um, came upstairs and we're both like, oh, we know what the second talk needs to be about, which is usually always what the second day talk is about, which is what gets in the way of us being able to live from this fundamental openness, this fundamental okayness, this fundamental arising and falling away with no resistance. That's the trick. <laughs> That's the practice. And um, how easily we get confused that this um, shin is only there when we feel it. You know, when, when, when I'm looking at the tomatoes, what a wonderful, yes. Where is it, you know, when I am struggling and suffering and self-hating? And I, I know that I get confused and I think others get confused that this is, 
this shin is not dependent on any particular experience or any particular feeling. And um, when I was preparing, I, I was uh, always go, I always go to Zen Mind Beginner's Mind because everything is in there. <laughs> and so there's a quote from Suzuki Roshi that I really appreciated. Um, you know, he was around uh, and developing a sangha of Western, you know, with Western students in the 1960s in San Francisco. So he says in a talk, recently the younger generation talks about love. Love, love, love. Their minds are full of love. And when they study Zen, if what I say does not accord with the idea they have of love, they will not accept it. They are quite stubborn, you know. <laughs> of course, not all, but some have a very, very hard attitude. This is not naturalness at all. Even though they talk about love and freedom and, or naturalness, they do not understand these things. So how do we get clear about what this shin is and um, know that this uh, feeling quality um, can, can be an important piece of it, but it's not about emotion and it's not about feeling. So, so as Kosen mentioned, you know, this um, Buddha leaving the palace and uh, searching for this home, this home we're calling Shin. So all of Buddhism, you can say, is a study of the separation from this original mind, from this original heart. This is what we do. We study all the ways in which we lose contact. All the places we create separation, as uh, Martin Buber, the theologian, would say, the I-it versus the I-thou. Another way to look at it is all the ways we create boundaries and opposites into this and that. And that's great for discerning, you know, like um, the thinking mind is a helpful assistant, as Kosa mentioned, but it, it gets easily confused. And there's so many causes for this sense of separation and alienation. There's a fundamental um, piece, I think, about it being a self-conscious human. And then there are all the ways we enact this, all the ways we um, refuse to acknowledge the subjectivity of parts of ourselves or others. So I was thinking that most of our harm is caused in, in those we keep at a real distance you know, those who we objectify and therefore dehumanize and abuse or dominate. And then I think there's a particular kind of harm 
that gets caused by those we were most close to because we've actually surrendered a bit. We've opened up, we've allowed them in. And uh, they matter to us. And so we, we um, get hurt in that fundamental openness. And then on top of it, we have just since the beginning of human history, violence and oppression and domination that's played out. And then also, as, as um, Siddhartha found out, there is this, um, this pain around just being vulnerable of, of death, of losing people, grief. So there's so many reasons why we might want to cut off our connection to shin, <laughs> to feeling. And it, it happens in an instant, you know. It's when, when we get quiet and we study, and particularly here, there's so much silence, you know, so you can watch and in Sashin, all of you can watch and see, you know, one minute, lovely connection, the next minute, something comes in and we are um, irritated, agitated, turning against ourselves, turning against the imagined others in our minds. This is just um, a critical but painful thing to see. So when we sit zazen, you know, um, the ceremony of zazen is um, a ceremony of enacting non-separation. So it's our intention to sit down and be with everything. And uh, so this is how we start practicing with this, going against this, uh, starting to work with all of those many, many uh, moments of painful separation of harm enacted upon us, or we have uh, enacted upon another of just all of the humanness, the vulnerability of our humanness. So uh, we sit down and uh, this is what I love about Zen. We are actually training to return to wholeness. <laughs> You'll see, this is another great practice. We have our, we have seven monks and about 50 flies <laughs> in uh, sitting zazen this weekend. And, um, you know, I can see my, my mind so clearly. Sometimes the... Um, the fly will land and I will feel this kind of um, almost sweetness. Sure, you can hang out on my arm. <laughs> it's okay. No big deal. And then all of a sudden it like bites me. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, off. And I, I do think that this is part of our practice. How do we open up to the fly, 
but also, you know, this is discernment where we, it's okay. It's okay for us to say no. It's okay for us to let something go or, or move away from something. But how do we do that without making it an it that we can then dismiss or hurt or harm? You know, then we, then we foreground and make only important our own subjectivity. So, Sashin just um, creates a, a container for us to look at this and study this and, and the details of it. You know, and, and um, all Zen forms are attempts to inaction. You know, we, we bow to each other and we take care with every single thing. We eat the food, whether we, with graciousness, hopefully, <laughs> I fail sometimes, whatever it tastes like, you know? I mean, we are, we are lucky to have Kiku here, so it's often just a wonderful taste, but that's not the point. So the Zen forms and the community is to help us remember wholeness, help us remember um, to act as if we, we, we have shin and we do. And um, Greg mentioned briefly yesterday, the Brahma Viharas, they're also a place to practice. Uh, they're both a, a like the precepts or a practice we take up, we can take up loving friendliness or compassion practices or sympathetic joy or equanimity, but they're also a fruit. So, so they are, that is what an awakened heart looks like. It's a, it's a home, a dwelling place. The Viharas mean dwelling. So, I think we often in Zazen in our practice go through cycles. This is cyclical, it's not linear, but you know, we sit down and we have an intention to open and we evoke an intention to be kind or gentle with ourselves or with others or with a particular, with our breath, with our bodies. And then what happens is um, we're, we're resisting. So to allow ourselves to rest in the heart is actually terrifying for many of us. And there's a, a, a famous expression that love brings up everything unlike itself. So it's not just that we come in, I think, with uh, blocks to feeling this natural capacity of the heart for shin, but it almost, to me, I've come to realize is like when I when I start to allow myself to rest in shin, it's like everything that doesn't believe that <laughs> starts to speak. And it almost feels threatened by it, you could say. For the last few weeks, I've actually been practicing metta um, I have a complicated history with that practice. 
years ago, uh, I was sitting in the Zendo and, you know, uh, like Yoko did last night, um, Tia asked uh, uh, the students, some students to give these practices, guided meditations. And so mine was metta, you know, I thought, great. Everyone's going to love this. <laughs> I've told this story. And then we, we sat down and talked about it afterwards. And man, were people pissed. <laughs> they were angry. They did not like it. They were cynical. They thought this was not, you know, appropriate. I could not believe the level of, of resistance around it. And because of my own conditioning, I thought I'd done something wrong. Like this was a really bad thing to do. And um, I have to confess that sometimes I um, get confused, especially in Zen. You know, Zen is about just be, you know being with what is, and then there are cultivation practices. But I have often um, also kind of dismissed them. And Greg, I think mentioned this, this as secondary or not as sophisticated or repetitive, you know. Sometimes I think, oh, I'm gonna try a loving kindness practice. And then I look at all the teachers, you know, sites about it, and they're all telling me to do the same thing. You know, <laughs> may I be happy, may I be healthy, you know, whatever verses. And I'm just like, is that it? <laughs> Can I do something else? And that is, that's the resistance. That's the lack of faith. That's the diminishment of this powerful energy. And I have been doing it the last few weeks. And do I feel something immediately? No. But my whole, the whole atmosphere of my body changes. I don't feel an alienation from myself. You know, that there is something that gets cultivated. And so we, we look at and start to feel all the protections, these beautiful survival skills from getting hurt again. You know, zoning out, constriction in our muscles, you know, that is, that is like a rock, you know, cultivated over years and years for me, going on 59 years, some certain places. You know, irritability, anger, judging. Judging is such a way of creating that alienation and keeping out the warmth. Self-abuse. I never know whether I should share these things, but, you know. <laughs> Craig said to me, oh, you know, this is about original heart. This is your wheelhouse. No problem for, for your talk, you know. <laughs> Um, and last night in the middle of the night, man, did, did my mind turn on me? It was throwing everything at me more than usual before my talks. And I do think it's like, this is, this is, you know, this is, um, this is radical revolutionary stuff. You know, this is the, this is the Dharma that I, that I want to keep offering. And something is threatened about that. <laughs> but I persist. <laughs> I show up. Because that's my training. This is what I love about Zen. It doesn't matter. And something gets um, 
something gets birthed, you know, something gets connected again. So we do do cultivation practices. And the thing is that the more you cultivate whatever the qualities you want to, you value and you cultivate them, they do become a more ongoing accessible part of your being. They do help us to find our way home. So Zazen, yes, but how is your Zazen? What are you doing in Zazen? What are you, what are you separating from? What are you pushing away? What are you resting in? You know, uh, Greg talked about like leaving the palace, but we can come to our Zazen cushion and create another little palace out of, out of practice. And are we willing to sit with all those um, beings inside of us and care for them and notice them and figure out, okay, what's the medicine? What do I need to do? How can I see them as not separate? How can I get closer? How can I stabilize my mind and body so I can move into that pain? When is it too much? You know, I gotta, I gotta go do something else. I need to, I, it needs discipline and it needs gentleness as uh, Yoko was saying last night and Ian was saying this morning. So our practice is to meet the suffering in everything that arises that hinders this original heart. Um, I came across an article by Pema Chandra Rinpoche in The Lion's Roar. And she says, don't give up on love when love is hard or painful. Open your heart even further. So it is an open heart that's already there meeting what feels like a closed place. It's not as if you're only closed. It's always there. The awareness is there. The intention in practicing is already there. You know, Dogen says in this chant that we just chanted, all we, we in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors. Love will win. <laughs> Maybe not in this lifetime, but this is the faith of our practice. You know, that we will eventually return. We have to make sure we have an earth to return to, <laughs> but we will. And that's the faith by this moment to moment practice. So I wanted to um, respond and um, return to the story of Buddha's life. So um, Kosin spoke about it yesterday about Siddhartha and his father. And I wanted to mention another important person in the story of Buddha's leaving home. And that's Siddhartha's wife, Yasudhara. Actually, Kosin taught me something yesterday. He said it's actually pronounced, if I can do it. Yashodara. Yashodara. So there's many versions of what happened with the Buddha and his, and uh, the Siddhartha and his wife. And I love this particular version of this story, which is from the sixth century India. 
that um, in this story, unlike Siddhartha's father, Yasodhara did not resist Siddhartha's departure. She gave him permission to leave. What happened is the night before he left, she had eight dreams that foretold his awakening. So you could say, um, listening, that she was listening to the story that you can see that she's already developed this shin, this capacity to hear and surrender to something deeper than her own desires, opening up to a greater need. And one of the uh, ways that we can actually create the possibility of opening up to Shin is to recognize we are surrounded and supported by so many beings. All of our ancestors, our families, our community, this community. So she was able to uh, listen in a deeper way for something older and deeper than, than where she was in this moment. Maybe supporting her to be able to renounce and getting comfortable with this uh, greater calling that, that was asked of her. Maybe because of the shin, the heart that she has, she already cultivated. She could uh, willingly and with dignity take on the sorrow and grief of this Bodhisattva act. So in this story, she is um, not an it, an, a, you know, an object of Buddhist story. She's a subject and she is um, teaching and cultivating herself. So she became pregnant that night he left and she stayed pregnant for the next six years, which is the amount of time the Buddha was on his, the Siddhartha was on his journey to become the Buddha, to awaken. And during this time, she stayed at home and, and carried her baby around for six years. <laughs> and while she was doing that, she actually traveled the same path as the Buddha, the same spiritual path in her home, cultivating the same practices, going through the same difficulties. And Greg mentioned a womb yesterday, and I, I imagine her womb and I, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking her womb isn't just carrying the baby, it's carrying her grief, it's carrying her sorrow, it's carrying all that pain. And I, I love this story too, because it's kind of what's happening for us. You know, some of us left home uh, and are here, you know, left home to practice in a monastery. And all of you have left home too, in a way, you've left palace gates, you've left your normal life, you've, you know, maybe put yourself in a separate room, set up your, set up your cushion, and for three precious days you left home, while staying at home, right, like her, you know, maybe there's children in the other room, so we practice and then we, we attend, we go back and forth, and we realize, just like Siddhartha, that we're being supported by many people to do so, right? 
family, friends, whoever is supporting you to sit here today, and all these other beings. So then um, the story goes that on a full moon night, the same night as the Buddha's enlightenment, which she had prophesized in this story, so there is a deep connective tissue between the two of them. Between all these beings supporting this process of awakening. And then she gave birth to her son, Rahula. And as many of us um, resist <laughs> the, uh, the, the, uh, in, in many of the stories, Rahula means fetter. But in this story, Rahula means moon god. So this moon of enlightenment. Baby is born, she gives birth. After six years of practicing with life, with family, with children, with work, with illness, with sorrow. And they're practicing together. The Buddha out in the forest somewhere, she at home together. Us in the monastery, some of you in Brooklyn and other places, you know, together. I think I wanted to tell her story because it's, it's, um, it feels embodied. It feels like I can connect to it, you know? <laughs> yeah, when Greg said womb yesterday, I just couldn't get it out of my head because I, I was, because it, it intuitively linked me to this understanding of where this uh, awakened heart arises out of, which is a, which is prajnaparamita, this wisdom. It's a, a wisdom, but it's not a wisdom, as, as Kosin was saying from up here, it's a wisdom that arises from being with and sitting in the depth. You know, Yoko last night, I love the soil, the dirt, the earth, the pain very, very um, important. So uh, this fall, uh, when I was studying, I, I was studying this, um, the Prajnaparamita Sutras. And I think basically I was studying them because they were called the Great Mother. <laughs> and I knew that they were the originating text of the Mahayana school. And I wanted to read a devotional text. And um, it reminds me of this, you know, that uh, she was also gestating wisdom. We're all sitting here gestating wisdom. And it's not, again, it's, a, it's an embodied wisdom. It's a wisdom that comes from the tomatoes. And it sparks something. It sparks an understanding of dependent co-arising, the fact that we're all in this together. 
And from that, there is a, a heart quality that's born of a, a kind of a, a, com, a compassionate mother, you know, overflowing with kindness. <laughs> the way I am mostly with my dogs is just ridiculously overflowing <laughs> affection. <laughs> But it's also a, a loving wisdom, a wisdom part. The Prajnaparamita Sutras are seen in the feminine and their, their wisdom. So it's an exacting mother, you know. Don't have any misunderstanding or any errors here. Don't misunderstand what we're pointing to here or else you'll fall into harm. Understand that all of this arises out of the fact that they, we are not a separate self. There's no solidity to anything. Please don't forget this, you know, because really we won't be able to live this awakened heart as long as we are hanging on to these boundaries. We don't realize life is boundarylessness. So I wanted to read you from this um, sutra what this practice offers us in terms of our wish to end suffering for beings or to be of help. So the, the, I, I, this is just, um, this is the one I have. This, it's a Mother of the Buddhas by Lex Hickson. And there's many, many sutras and there's many, many lines, 84,000 lines, maybe more. This one I think is 84,000. The Heart Sutra is part of the Prajnaparamita Sutra. And um, this section, and it's just devotional after devotional, like over and over again, this is what it is. So this is under the chapter that says how to recognize a bodhisattva. So she, they, the, the text says, wherever these diamond beings move, these bodhisattvas move through blissful spiritual realms or comfortable physical environments, their heart awareness does not wander even for an instant from the suffering of all beings. No matter how comfortable, no matter how privileged, no matter how well, no matter how at ease, our ease, we never lose contact with suffering beings. That's where our heart goes. So we never lose contact and this is the other a quote from How to Recognize a Bodhisattva. As the full moon illuminates both tiny herbs and night sky, do moon-like bodhisattvas illuminate for all beings whatever righteous, dignified, excellent, and wholesome ways of life can be envisioned and practically manifested in the world. <laughs> so I love the practical part. You know, this is... We're, we're doing this, we're, we're manifesting this. We're not just imagining this. And it goes from the tiniest being to the largest being. And it's very natural, this is not far away from who we are. We all have these um, fully developed bodhisattva capacities in a given moment. A couple of days ago, um, I went to um, 
brush my teeth in the sink. And I look down, I have a white sink. And in the sink is the tiniest little black speck you could imagine, like smaller than a pin head. And um, because of all the tick beings we live with all over the place, we're always, our minds are like trained. Little black dot, what is it? Is it a tick? You know? So we, our mind is already trained to look for these things. And what happened to me in that moment because I knew if I just turned the water on, the thing is lost. It was actually a tiny, I don't know if you've ever seen those tiny, 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 tiny little bugs. I don't know what they are, maybe a little baby. And it was doomed. I turned the water on, it is doomed. Uh, now, the Han is going. I got a few minutes, you know, what do I do? And um, naturally, my heart just recognizing as a sentient being did not, want to, did not want to harm it. And I know all of you have had this experience, you know, taking bugs out of, the, <laughs> out of your room. And um, I didn't, you know, in that moment, I didn't. And I have to confess, maybe I didn't because I had another sink right next to me, <laughs> living in this strange place that I do where there's two sinks in my bathroom. So I was able to take care of my needs and let that little bug live. So that's wonderful. And in five minutes later, gone, forgotten that ability to, 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 to um, live from this place of I thou with this bug is gone, you know, stepping on things, you know, turning the water on things, you know, it goes in and out. But what a precious thing to be able to feel that much connection to something so tiny. This is what, this is what we cultivate. And, and for most of us in Sashin, I would say, we need to do this with all of our little tiny beings. <laughs> you know, give them some space to live. Let the muscles, you know, recognize these muscles as, as beings that need our care, our stillness. Part of the reason we're describing this is just to help guide, you know, so you can recognize it. And one of the markers or the um, signs of this shin operating that's you know the, the clearing away the clouds from the moon is that there's a quality to it we talk about this quality and one of the ways that it's described is luminous so there's a quality of of um shining and it's always shining it was shining last night at two in the morning when i was being uh, tortured. And part of the way that we break free of these boundaries is to embrace our hatred with love, you know, to just really open up to these protective demon-like 
pains, emotional, physical, otherwise, that haunt us, that come up, you know, as we attempt to cultivate shin. So this is the biggest mistake we make, and we, we have to say, and I have to remind myself over and over and over again, everything is included. And I do think it does You know, most people say, and I have this, you know, I'm going to love this thing so it goes away, right? There's an equanimity there, which is one of the Brahma Viharas, one of the fruits. So I want to quote Rinpoche again. She says, the Bodhisattva love is like moonlight shining on a hundred bowls of water. Every bowl is filled with moonlight, but because the moon is not making it happen through aggressive efforts, there is abundant light because the moon is relaxing as it is, giving itself over to its innate luminosity. So this is a practice instruction. Are you over-efforting? Are you trying to make something happen? Are you being aggressive? And being aggressive can mean ignoring, zoning out. Are you shining your light on all the moons appearing? I mean, all the bowls of water appearing. Can you relax and allow this inevitable heart, original heart, to shine? We really need each other for this. And um, the world needs it. Greg um, has been reading this book called Survival of the Friendliness. No, Survival of the Friendliest, which I love because, you know, our conditioning says in order to survive, we've got to put the armor on. And the truth of the matter is, from an evolutionary perspective, there is something adaptive and life-giving and life-forwarding around friendliness, around kindness. This psychologist says, we are not survival of the fittest, we are survival of the nurtured. So, so much practice discussion, so much of my own practices, how do I, how do I nourish myself? How do I nourish this, this heart? And again, you know, this, our, our, our earth is dependent upon us doing this. So maybe for the rest of the Sashin, one, one practice, there's so many practices, but now that I imagine that um, after sitting for a day that there's a more of an, just that natural openness, that sensitivity, starts to arise, um, 
perhaps you can just notice the heart that's already there, the support that's already there, the life-giving quality that's already in your environment, whether it's just a breeze coming through your window or um, the support of a partner in the other room. Can you really feel the effort of each one of you? This is tremendous, you know? So many, of, so many of you have explained how hard it is to practice alone, how much we actually rely on all of our bodies doing this together. So can you let yourself take that in? I am. <laughs> Tremendous gratitude for doing this. Not easy. Not fun at moments. Probably not fun most of the time. <laughs> but so important. And um, I can't tell you how much each of you are supporting our practice right now here. My practice. So they can, you know, conditions can take away our zendo. But this practice is stronger than that, and our sangha is stronger than that. As long as we keep reconnecting to this shin, remembering this shin. So thank you all very much. I hope you have a great rest of your sashin. May our intention equally penetrate. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.